as a bride for her bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And this is a reading of God's word. We say, thanks be to God. So all through Revelation, <coughs> the book of Revelation, we have this vision. You've heard me say this before. It might be helpful as we get to the end to kind of uh, to step back and look at the forest and see what's, what Revelation is all about. It's a vision from Jesus to John to convey to his servants the things that uh, are about to take place. His servants here, he's referring to, are faithful Christians. And he's about to show them about the trials and tribulations that they're going to experience and to encourage them in it. But then also to kind of to pull back the curtain and to see the, the reality that's taking place in the spiritual world, in the spiritual realm. Because although it may look like uh, the... The world is winning and Christians were losing, especially in John's day. Um, John gets this vision from Jesus to show him who really is in control and who really has ultimate power and ultimate authority. And to encourage them to stay fast because Jesus is coming back and he's coming to make things right. And so all through Revelation, you have a series of visions about uh, how uh, what is taking place in the world and what's going to happen in the future. And at the end of each of those layers that we've seen, we've gotten a little snippet and a little glimpse and it gets bigger and clearer as we go throughout Revelation that Jesus will come and that he will come again and he will come finally. And he will come to judge. The final judgment, as we saw last week, it culminates in Revelation chapter 20. And we saw this, if you would turn to Revelation 20, just uh, the paragraph before. The great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And then he saw the dead in verse 12, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. So all who were to stand in opposition to Christ Jesus, who is described as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, 
All who stand in opposition to Christ Jesus will be thrown into the lake of fire. The other term that's used for this lake of fire imagery is, as we read, the second death. These two things elsewhere in the scripture describe um, are, are referring to what is more commonly called hell. We use that term hell to kind of describe uh, as uh, uh, one quote I read about it this week, the most ghastly human experience possible. So war is hell. Or someone is experiencing hell on earth. Or a living hell. But biblically speaking, there really is nothing, nothing worse than actual hell. And there's many people who actually don't like the idea of hell. Some even consider the idea of hell as a very unchristian kind of thing. But this overlooks the fact that the vast majority of the entire Bible's teaching on hell comes from the lips of Christ himself. It comes from the teaching of Jesus. Where he speaks of hell in many different places as a place of outer darkness. A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place of eternal separation from God. A prison, he describes it as. A place of torment. A place of anguish. And here, it's described as the lake of fire and a second death. So who goes there? Well, notice in chapter 19, verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in its presence... The beast and false prophet appear several chapters earlier. These are kind of a, the, with the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, you have kind of this satanic trinity as imitating the, the triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have, you have dragon and beast and false prophet. And so two of those, the beast and uh, the false prophet, who had done signs by which he had deceived those who received the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So who goes there? The beast does. The false prophet does. Who else goes there? Chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. So the devil, the ancient serpent, Satan, will be thrown into this lake of fire. And as we saw last week, death and Hades, or the, the place of the dead, or the abode of the dead, or the grave, also is thrown into the lake of fire. Look at verse 14 of chapter 20. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second de death, the lake of fire. And lastly, anyone who refuses to genuinely turn from their sins and to turn to Christ as Savior is also thrown into this lake of fire. This we see at the end of chapter 20 and also in our passage that we read this morning. Look at 20 verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And in verse 8. 
For the cowardly, the faithless, detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. But it's on the heels. It's on the heels of this horrific and most ghastly of places, hell, that we are given one of the most beautiful and wonderful pictures of heaven. We go from the end of chapter 20 to a place of a lake of fire and the second death describing hell to a description in chapter 21 and 22 of heaven. And so it starts in 21 and we'll look at just the beginning of this today and we'll, we'll get to the rest of it next week. But what a wonderful and beautiful picture from tragedy uh, comes triumph. We go from hell to heaven in chapters 21 and 22. And so I wanted to look at just these first couple of verses here and just to notice a couple things about them. First, the former things. We're going to look at the former things, the new new things and trustworthy and true things. The former things. Verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for, and here's the reason why he saw a new one. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So we saw a little of this last week of the kind of the undoing of creation. And you, before the new creation could come, you needed a purging of the old creation. The, the first things. He goes on to say at the end of chapter four, for the former things have passed away. This, again, is what the entire biblical story has been working toward. When God had created the world and he created human beings and he put them into a beautiful garden and a place for them to dwell and for them to walk in the presence of God. He created a a beautiful and perfect place. Some would say, well, maybe it wasn't quite what wasn't perfect, but it was something, a place that we have no experience of here in this creation. Because at the end of this, you have the fall of man, uh, of of humanity, the fall of Adam and Eve as uh, Adam and Eve took that fruit that they were forbidden from taking and they took it and ate it and they sinned against God. Their eyes were open. They saw that they were naked and they felt shame and they covered themselves in their shame and tried to hide themselves from the very presence of God. And ever since then, sin has kind of gone through the world and kind of contaminated the world. And the the entire creation is described as being in, in bondage or groaning. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation, or excuse me, Romans chapter Uh, Romans chapter 8 verses 18 through 22 Paul has just been uh, talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit to come and to make people believers in Jesus Christ and that they are filled with the Holy Spirit and have the Holy Spirit in them and that it is by that spirit that they are that they are enabled to be called children of God. 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, as it says in verse 17, provided we suffer with him so that we will be glorified with him. But notice what it says in Romans 8, verses 18 through 22. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, stop and think about that. Creation itself is eagerly longing and waiting for what we as Christians have in beginning form. Creation is, is, is tarnished and contaminated by sin and that this work of salvation that God does when, he, uh, when people put their faith in Jesus Christ, he gives them his Holy Spirit to dwell within him. And as Paul says elsewhere, they become a new creation. And so this old creation, this world that we live in, looks at believers in Christ and is jealous, longing. Oh, I'm longing to, creation is saying this, okay? Kind of, you could think of it this way. Creation is saying, I want what Christians have. They get a little bit of taste of the new creation and the new heaven because it, we're described as a new creation. And then when Jesus comes back, as we'll see at the end of this passage, we become sons and daughters of Christ fully and completely. We're children of God now, but then we will have perfected bodies. We will be with him in his perfected glory in heaven. And so he says the creation itself is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So all of creation is in bondage to sin. Groaning, awaiting for it to be made new. What we saw in Revelation 21 is this making new of this creation. We saw in 2 Peter chapter 3, we looked at this last week, it might be helpful for us to see this again. 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter's writing about what has to happen to this creation when the Lord returns so that he could prepare a new creation. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord, which is the, 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 his coming back, will come like a thief. Okay, we don't know the, the hour or the date of Christ's return. And he's going to come. And he's taking this actually from a teaching that Jesus himself gave using a parable of like a thief coming at night. He will, he will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. He goes on in verse um, 
uh, well, let's keep reading verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter's referring here to passages in Isaiah chapter 65 and Isaiah chapter 66 of the promise that God, when he returns, he is going to dissolve this present world and to bring a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And this is the vision that John himself sees. So the former things will pass away. That's the first thing we need to know about this passage. The former things pass away. But now let's take a look at some of the new things that that John sees. Verse 1, then I saw the new heaven and the new earth. And again, Isaiah chapter 65 and 66. This is a fulfillment of that prophecy from Isaiah. Notice verse 5 of Revelation chapter 1. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So we have a new heaven and a new earth, and it is described as the holy city, the new Jerusalem, in verse 2, coming down out of heaven from God. So this will be a holy city set apart. No sin, no uh No contamination of any sort will be in this new Jerusalem. And he describes it as a new Jerusalem because that's the the um, throughout the Old Testament. That's the, the city of God where God is said to have placed his name. But what he sees is what John sees is a brand new Jerusalem city of of peace. And a dwelling place with God coming down out of heaven. And then I love this description prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All throughout the biblical story, Christ is is likened to the groom and his church is likened to a bride. And here you have this wedding feast, this celebration as the bride meets her awaiting husband. This church awaits her savior. It's a picture of some of the new things that will happen when he comes. And then God will actually dwell with man. Notice what it says in verse three. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. See how this is kind of an undoing of the curse that comes in Genesis chapter three. Because when God shows up and walks into the garden in the, the cool of the day, as it says, And Adam and Eve had hid themselves and they tried to cover themselves for their shame and their nakedness because of their sin. And then they are 
expelled from this garden. Can you imagine living and dwelling with your creator, the one who made you? And then having to be expelled from his presence. And then for, as the, the, the story ends, there's two cherubim with flaming swords guarding the place where that was. God has since then promised to be with his people, but he was kind of mediating through different things like the tabernacle or the temple or is symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant all throughout the Old Testament story. And this culminates with the coming of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. But as we know, Jesus ascends up into heaven, into the presence of God. And then lastly and finally, when he comes back, now the undoing of this separation, this veil that separates humanity from their creator has been overcome in this new Jerusalem, in this new city. God is dwelling with his people. Those are some of the new things. But now let's look at some of the trustworthy and true things. And by this, I'm referring to the promises that Christ gives us. Notice at the end of verse five. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And I believe that the these words as he's referring to everything that he said and everything that he has described in these verses. Verse six. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Notice there won't be any mourning, death, or pain. Notice verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. A little later in that verse. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying. And again, as we've seen many times, this is an allusion to something um, that God himself had said earlier in Isaiah. And I reread this passage again last night and I was just blown away by it. And I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapters 24 and 25. Twenty-five verse eight is is uh, more specifically the illusion that that um, John is speaking of here about wiping every tear from their eyes. But I would like for us to just read the the kind of the larger passage that actually goes at the end of chapter uh, twenty-four. And notice you'll you'll notice some of the same themes that we've covered in Revelation chapter. 19 and 20 and even now into 21 on this judgment on the earth and the kind of the undoing of creation and that the Lord will will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and so just follow along and, and just kind of hear these words And think of how it corresponds with what we've read in Revelation chapter, uh, chapters 19 through 21. We'll start in verse 20 or 19. 
The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. Sounds like Revelation 17 through 19, doesn't it? The war that takes place in heaven and Satan being thrown down to the earth. And then when Jesus comes, the kings of the earth crying out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, trying to flee. Verse 22, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure, for you have made the city a heap, a fortified city, a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in the distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the, for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. And then he says this, on this mountain, he's referring to this city of Jerusalem. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, and of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And then they will sing a song of praise, verse 9. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So here's this promise in Isaiah of what's going to happen when he's going to come, when he is going to judge all of these other nations. Will he throw them into a pit? Sounds so reminiscent of what we've seen. And then it ends with the the source of the, the mourning and the crying. And that is the penalty of sin and death, which is what he says, which is the second one. So there's mourning and crying. And then notice in verse Uh, Also in verse verse four and death shall be no more. So mourning and death and pain will all be overcome. Neither shall there be pain anymore.
How does Jesus do this? How does Jesus overcome mourning? And in the context of Isaiah, uh, I think this is this is mourning, obviously, of of death, the mourning of the loss of loved ones. But I think there's a deeper understanding to what's the source of this mourning. The source of this mourning is the sin that we bring into the world because of our rebellion. Mourning and crying, not just because you're sad, but mourning and crying, deep-seated mourning because sin has been come into the world and death through sin and pain. Jesus comes to undo all of those things and he comes and he undoes all of those things by the cross. Death, Jesus defeats death and mourning and pain by experiencing pain, dying on a cross. And all who looked on him mourned. Here you have this, this is the gospel. This is the fruit of this gospel of Christ and his work on the cross. That mourning and death and pain will be gone. And then notice the promise that he gives in verse 6. 21 verse 6. He says to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And again, says these words. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. These things Christ has obtained for you. And he gives to you. And he obtained them through his cross and his death and his resurrection. So that he can take you who would put your faith in Christ and dwell with you forever. You will be his child. This is just the beginning of this wonderful picture that we see in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. The new heaven and the new earth Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. And to the thirsty, he will give us springs of water of life without payment. Are you thirsty for Jesus? Do you long for for the day when you get to see Jesus face to face? Where Jesus is of the, the, the supreme value to you in this life. If you do, the message here is cling to him. Remain faithful to Jesus here. You will rejoice and see his salvation. 
You will get to drink of the springs of water. You will get to be called his son and his daughter. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this this picture and this beginning uh, glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth. God, we thank you that you would come and you would rescue us and deliver us from our sins through Christ. We're thankful that you're going to come and that you are going to bring a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, a new glorious city that we will dwell with you. We will walk in your presence, that we will live forever, that we will be called your sons and your daughters. And that all of the pain and the mourning and the death and the loss that we experience in this world because of the curse of sin will be gone. Lord, we look forward to that day. God, we ask that you, by your spirit, would continue to renew us. Renew us into the image of your son, Jesus. Make us mindful of the the blessings that we have through fellowship with you now, through your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand the identity that we have as as your children here in this world. That we are a new creation and that even this broken and fallen creation that is groaning and is in bondage to sin is eager, eagerly awaiting the day when you come back and will get to experience the, the restoration and renewal that we get to experience in part. We look forward to when we get to experience it in whole and we could see you face to face. Thank you for this vision. And may it fuel us to serve you this week. And it's in Christ's mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand for our closing benediction, shall we? Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship that we share in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.